0: Communicated through our study of the uh, first nine plagues or signs in the book of Exodus, I hope it's the message of that song, that there is no one higher, there's no one exalted above the Lord Jesus Christ, and as we'll get into today, that he is strong enough to bring about those plagues, but ultimately is sovereign enough to deliver his people. And to redeem his people and to rescue them from 400 and some years of slavery. Um, That's the culmination, the climax of his power. It's redemption. It's freedom and deliverance and the creation of a new people for his honor and his glory. Thanks to our musicians for leading us this morning and directing our thoughts toward the Lord and helping us in our worship of him. You can open up to Exodus 11. That's where we'll be this morning. There are certain ideas that get bound up in a national consciousness, in, the, in, a, in a nation or in a culture. And oftentimes, those ideas that define a culture, you can trace back to the nation or the culture's beginning, how they started. In our culture, in the United States in particular, we value freedom. And I think you can trace that back to even before our founding as a country with the Declaration of Independence and all of that. I mean, you can go all the way back to the pilgrims coming over here in the 1620s, pursuing their, the right to worship as they wanted to. And then you can sort of trace that idea of freedom up through our independence and to the Civil War when we fought to realize that idea of freedom that had been there But wasn't being acted upon and so we freed an entire group of people and then up through the civil rights movement to further clarify and understand and realize that freedom we've always been a nation that values freedom and is pursuing the idea of what freedom looks like and what it means and so we tell our children those stories we talk about as a as a culture the Pilgrims and the War for Independence and the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement, and we we talk about those things in order to show that we value freedom and we want to pass that on to our children. It becomes our sense of identity as a people. And in much the same way, although differently, you never want to equate Israel and the United States. That's not a good method of Bible study and application. But in, in a similar way, Israel valued and found their sense of identity in their liberation from slavery in Egypt. I mean, this moment when they are freed from 430 years of slavery in Egypt becomes their sense of identity. They look back to this and it determines who they are in an ongoing sense. But very differently from the American idea of freedom and the the liberation that we have experienced as a people, Israel's freedom came about not by their own doing. Their freedom came about by the Lord choosing them and orchestrating this entire series of events that culminate in the Passover and that ultimately freed them from slavery. And and God is the center of their experience of freedom and liberation, and And he is the one doing all of this for his name and for his glory and for his honor. And he brings redemption to them through the judgment that he uh, enacts on Egypt and through, as we'll see today, a sacrifice that brings them uh, to freedom and to their identity as a people. And the, stories, the story that we're going to look at today is the climax of, of what we've been looking at, of all of these signs and these plagues that we've been talking about, the, fro- the, the frogs and the flies and the hail and the darkness and all of this has been pointing to and leading to this 10th sign and then the deliverance that God will bring about through a sacrifice that comes to Israel through this 10th sign. And as you think about what we're going to read about today, I hope this will get lodged in your brain and in your thinking for this coming week. But I would say, ultimately, you cannot make sense of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Passover lamb without the background of this story. You can't understand what 1 Corinthians 5-7 means when it calls Jesus our Passover lamb without going back to the book of Exodus and uncovering how God brought about the deliverance of Israel through judgment, by a sacrifice, in order to liberate them and bring them to be His people with freedom to worship Him as He desires them to worship Him. And so understand that as we study this today, I'll be talking about a literal lamb or a goat here. I'll be talking about what Israel experiences, but in the background all the time is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, this story is a type. It's a shadow. It points forward, and it really is about what he has done and his work in redeeming us from sin. And so today, as we read this and as we study this story, we're going to see four elements of redemption. And it's the redemption of Israel here, but all of these are very true of you and I in our redemption that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. So four elements of redemption that show the supremacy of God. They put his character on display. They help us to understand who he is, and they show him as the exalted, sovereign, supreme Lord over all. So four elements of redemption that show the supremacy of God. Exodus 11 is where we're going to be, and the first one of these is all of chapter 11. It's the reality of judgment. You and I cannot cannot grasp. You can't begin to understand the beauty and the glory of redemption and of freedom without first understanding the very real threat of judgment and death. And that's what we're going to find in these verses. So in chapter 10, we saw the ninth plague, which was the plague of darkness. And this was a significant experience for the Egyptians uh, because they saw Pharaoh as upholding his job was to uphold the natural order so that they could live and they could flourish and uh, so that they could eat and grow crops. And this plague of darkness descends the entire natural order into absolute chaos. Everything has been turned on its head. And this to them would have indicated that the end of the world was coming. Everything is falling apart It's night when it should be day, and the end of the world is coming here. And despite that, Pharaoh still refuses to let the children of Israel go. And in fact, at the end of that plague, that sign, he actually threatens the life of Moses. Look at chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face you shall die Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Now, I think as you move into chapter 11, you are meant, and I'm meant to read, what happens at the beginning of chapter 11 as the continuation of this conversation that's happening at the end of chapter 10. Moses has not yet left the building. He's still there, and God is communicating to Moses while he's standing in front of Pharaoh, and his life has just been threatened. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, right? It flows right into this. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. The language here, it says plague in the ESV, but as we've talked about throughout this, these aren't all plagues in the sense of Diseases or pandemics, these are strikes or blows. And this is the same word that's used of the Egyptians striking the Hebrew slave early on in the book of Exodus. And so God is saying, I am going to deliver one final blow, one final strike to the head of Pharaoh and of Egypt. And it's going to bring about your deliverance. And when God delivers his people here, he's not going to send them out empty handed. Look at verses 2 and 3. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Now God's not going to send them out empty-handed. He had promised this Back in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, that the Egyptians would give the Israelites their jewelry and their gold, and that Israel would go out of Egypt not as slaves, but they would be well supplied. And in some sense, they would have the riches of Egypt that they took out of the land. And all of this has been made possible because of the esteem that Moses has in the eyes of the people, because of all of this series of events and of plagues that have come about. And it's sort of ironic here that Moses is so revered in the eyes of the Egyptians when really this is exactly what Pharaoh would have expected for himself and what he would have wanted for himself. And so God says, I'm going to strike a blow to the Egyptians that will cause them to drive you away. And they're actually going to give you all this gold and jewelry and send you out with it. What sort of blow is coming that's going to bring this about. We'll look at chapter 11, verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt. We'll continue reading. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. A dog would have been the scavenger animal that was not valued, sort of like the lowest and uh, most disrespected animal that they had in the land. And so he's saying even, not even a dog, not even the, the most insignificant animal will threaten any of the Israelites here. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, That you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt." Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So God has, up until this point, has mediated all of these judgments, these signs through the natural order. Right? You've got frogs, you've got flies, you've got hail. And God sends these things and mediates the plagues through the natural order. But here, in verse 4, you have God saying, I'm going to go out into the midst of the people, and I am going to deliver this judgment blow to Egypt myself. And that's exactly what this is. This is a judgment blow. And you and I cannot grasp the significance of the Passover and what happens there. You can't reckon with how amazing the deliverance that Israel experiences. You cannot reckon with that until you comprehend that this is the very real threat of death and judgment here. Now, God is threatening judgment here because... Pharaoh and his people have clearly sinned against the Lord. They were deserving of judgment. They had enslaved God's people. Pharaoh had rejected God's word. He had arrogantly esteemed himself as a divine son of a God. And God would not be a just and a righteous God who can rightly order the universe who exists in righteousness unless he brings about a just penalty for rebellion against him. He has to be a God of justice, to be a righteous God, and for us to expect him to rightly order things and to set things right. One author put it like this, if God does not visit a just punishment, It shows that he has as little regard for himself as the creatures who have refused to honor him as God and give thanks to him. If God were not planning to dole out the threat of judgment here to Egypt for their rebellion and their sin against him, then he would not be a God who takes his own holiness and grace and righteousness and character seriously. And so he shows us here that he does. Over and over again in Scripture, the Bible warns us about the looming threat of God's judgment over sin. We have to take this seriously. We can't be honest about the Scriptures and about God's character and who the creator God of the universe is unless we understand him as a God who is righteous and will give judgment for sin. Because he values himself. Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. They know, we all know, whether we verbally acknowledge it or not, that there is a creator, God who is the sovereign king of the universe. It's, you look around and you can see these things. And yet, in our rebellion, because our hearts are darkened by sin, we suppress that knowledge and we push it down. And we don't want to be accountable to him. We don't want to do what he says. And so God, in order to be a righteous and a just God, has to have the threat of his wrath on that over sin. Romans chapter 3, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. They are born, we are born into this condition. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. We are born into this condition in rebellion against God, and there is no one who is born righteous no one who is born worshiping and loving God as they properly should. And this is true of all, regardless of socioeconomic position, of ethnicity, of geographical location, it is true of all. And what does this rebellion against God rightly earn? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Death. Not just physical death, but eternal separation from the righteous and holy and just God who we are in rebellion against. And so this is the message of the Bible, that there is the looming threat of judgment. And this threat of judgment has to be in the background before you can understand redemption. Now back in Exodus 11, it may seem like here that God is threatening only Egypt, And that he's going to just sort of let Israel off the hook. And that maybe you start to think, well, Israel has no sin. I mean, if you look in verse 7, it says that God is going to make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And he clearly says that. But the reality is here, even as you see later in the Old Testament, and certainly even in this passage in the New Testament regarding Jews and Greeks, all are under sin. And so the threat of judgment here would have fallen on Israel too. It was not limited only to Egypt. But the reason that God can so confidently say here that there will be a distinction made between Israel and Egypt because he plans on that distinction coming at a cost. Something has to happen for there to be a difference between an Egyptian family and a Jewish family living in Goshen. All are under the threat of judgment on this night, and something has to happen to make that distinction. And what has to take place? Well, that's our second element of redemption. There is the necessity of a sacrifice here. There's the reality of judgment. It is there. It is true. It is being threatened. The judgment of death, but there's also the necessity of a sacrifice that brings about this distinction. So, thus far in this story, we have sort of the broad outlines of what is going to happen, right? We know that God is going to deliver a final blow against Egypt that will cause Pharaoh to drive the Jews out of Egypt and they will be liberated to freedom. That's going to happen after centuries of slavery. We also know that God's name is going to be lifted up and it's going to be exalted. In verse 9 of chapter 11, God says that he's doing this and Pharaoh won't listen to them so that his wonders can be multiplied in the land of Egypt. God's going to deliver them with a final blow and his name is going to be exalted. So the question comes then, what action will God perform to protect Israel from judgment to glorify his name, and at the same time to deliver Israel from centuries of slavery in Egypt. What is going to bring all of those together? Well, whatever it is, it's going to be so dramatic in the life of this nation that they are going to have to completely change their calendars around and reorient the rest of their existence based on this action that's going to take place. And the reason I say that is because of chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Look there. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Don't just skip over that in your reading. This is monumental. I mean, what God is saying is now the life of this nation is going to be restructured around this event. The entire yearly calendar is going to be flipped on its head and it's going to start here. Life begins for the nation of Israel here with whatever action God is going to be performing and doing. From here on out, their lives would be built on this moment, when they were freed from slavery to an evil master and they were redeemed and liberated and brought and transferred into the service of a new and a good master. That's the starting point for their lives. And they have to even reorder the way they think about time around that reality. So how's it going to happen? What's going to bring all of this together? Well, it starts with the selection of a lamb. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. The lamb has to be carefully selected on the 10th day of the month. They are to keep it, make sure they have plenty of time to get the right one, and then everyone in the nation of Israel on the 14th day of the month at twilight is supposed to kill that lamb. Then, after they have killed that lamb, there is going to be a carefully prescribed ritual that is going to take place in each household in Israel. And this ritual is going to come in three parts. Listen to the three parts. First... The one you're most familiar with. The blood of that lamb that was killed at twilight is going to be applied to the outside of the house. To the lintel. Sorry, you can't read this without going forward to Christ. So I thought I got it all out in the first service, but I clearly didn't. <laughs> so the blood of that lamb is going to be applied to the lintel of the doorpost and to the, to the sides. That's the first thing that happens. Secondly, a meal, that's in verse 7. Let me read that. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Secondly, a meal is going to be eaten inside the household with everyone present. And that meal is going to involve three major elements. The lamb will be roasted, not boiled, be roasted. They will eat unleavened bread and they will be, eat bitter herbs. The bitter herbs indicating and reminding them of their slavery in Egypt. All of the lamb has to be eaten or the remains have to be burnt up before the morning. Look at verses 8 through 10. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. And so there's this meal that everyone in the house has to partake of that is from of the lamb that was killed at twilight and whose blood was applied to the doorposts the third part of this is the manner in which they are prepared and dressed look at verse 11 in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened your sandals on your feet which was unusual normally you took your sandals off when you went inside and your staff in your hand and you shall eat it in haste and now finally we get the name for this ritual It is the Lord's Passover. So all three of these actions are to be taken by the people on this night. Why was this given the name Passover? And what will happen when they do this? Verses 12 and 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Notice at the end of verse 12 in God's explanation here that he gives them his name once again. That has been so significant, hasn't it, in the book of Exodus. It's what he tells Moses. It's that name that he's going to glorify and put on display. And what he's saying is that this action, what's going on in this Passover, is going to put this name on display for all to see. He is a God of judgment, the threat of death over sin, but at the same exact time, he is a God of distinctions and a God who brings mercy and deliverance and forgiveness. This will be put on display, his character in both Goshen and in Egypt on this night. And everyone will see who this God is. He is not like other gods. Look at verse 12 again. He says that through this action, he is going to execute judgments on the gods of Egypt. How in the world does killing a lamb and putting the blood on the doorposts and eating a meal execute judgment on the gods of Egypt? What's the connection there? Remember, the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh, in communing with the gods as their representative, had the power of life and death and could maintain the natural order. And what God is saying here is, I hold that power. I bring life, I deliver, and I bring death. And no one else has that authority and that power. Only the God of Israel does, the true creator God. Now, all three of the pieces of this ritual called the Lord's Passover are significant, and each of them communicates something different about what is taking place here. Here's what they indicate. First of all, the blood of the lamb. The lamb died so that the firstborn could go free. I mean, the lamb was the sacrifice, and its blood was put on the doorpost so that in every Israelite house, a child, a firstborn, could go free. And so the blood averts wrath. The blood averts judgment over sin. The blood brings deliverance. The lamb dies so that each of these people can go free and it can live The meal was eaten communally together, and the meal was a meal of consecration. And so if you read forward in the book of Exodus, you have this moment when Aaron and his sons are set apart as priests. They are consecrated to the Lord and given over into his service, and they become his representatives and his priests. And this ritual is very similar to that. And so what this is communicating, this communal meal, is that together, the people of Israel are being set apart to Yahweh God. They are being made holy for him. And by eating this meal together, they were being set apart as his people, and they were taking on a new identity. They're new people who have been delivered from death and who now are given over into the service of Yahweh God. By a sacrifice. They're purified and made holy for Him. And finally, the last piece of this is the manner in which they were to eat. They were to eat ready, ready to roll. And they did this because they might have to leave in haste. And what this shows is that they were trusting God that He would accomplish what He said He would do. They're prepared. They're not casual about it. They are ready to go because God, they believe, is going to follow through on what he said he would do. Now, it's hard to even summarize and talk about the magnificence and the monumental significance of this moment. I I try to put words together to, to help you understand it and then feel it. But it's hard to even get there because it's so important. There are threads of the Passover throughout the Old Testament. And then, my goodness, when you get to the New Testament, we could spend weeks and months talking about the significance of this in the life of the church because of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to read you one section here from, from one of the authors that I, I looked through on this to try to give you some understanding of this and and feeling of what this how significant this is no other old testament redemptive event matches the passover in terms of theological significance in the celebration of passover the israelites are going out in newness of life set free spared from death and purified As well as being freed from bondage to a tyrannical despot, the Israelites are consecrated to become a holy nation with their firstborn sons being delivered from death. Their rescue by God, which marks the first stage towards the establishment of a covenant relationship, comes through redemption from slavery to an evil power and protection from death through a ritual that involves purification and consecration, the key elements of atonement. By these means, their status is transformed from being slaves to a cruel tyrant to becoming royal priests in the service of the one true God. And it is because this event is so massively influential. It forms their identity. It is the beginning of new life and a new way of being as God's chosen people and his children. It is because this event is so massive that they have to remember it. And that's our third part, third element of redemption. And we don't often think about this. We know there's the reality of judgment. We know there has to be a sacrifice in order for this distinction to be made and for deliverance from death to happen and judgment. But for Israel, this was so important for them. They had to remember what took place here. Last week, we read sections Danny read in the, uh, the Scripture reading a whole chapter in the book of Deuteronomy. If you go and read the book of Deuteronomy over and over again in that book, as the people are preparing to go in the promised land, God tells them, don't forget. Remember, don't forget. And specifically, don't forget this. Don't forget that you were slaves in Egypt and that God brought you out by a mighty hand and by a sacrifice that he redeemed you. They are to call to mind what God did in delivering them. They are to think about it. They are to talk about it. They are to sing about it. They are to participate in ceremonies and feasts that commemorate it. Their life is to be defined in light of what took place in this moment. All that they are goes back to this. And for you and I, you may not think about this often, but remembering what took place on the cross is vital to your ongoing identity as one who has been redeemed. It's so important. You won't make it without remembering. It has to be a part of who we are. You'll forget who you are, and you will act in ways that don't match your identity as one who has been bought out of slavery. And this is exactly why God gives Israel these instructions in verses 14 through 20. A lot of times we read about the feasts in scripture and we're just like, eh, we don't do anything like that. That's kind of weird. But there's a reason for this. It comes right on the heels of these instructions about the Passover because this is everything in their ongoing experience of being a redeemed people. They have to remember it. They have to teach their children about it. It has to be central to their thinking and to their communication as the people of God. Look, the Passover hasn't even happened yet. And God is like, you got to remember this. It hasn't even come to pass yet. And he's already saying, you have to remember what I'm going to do. And that's why verses 14 to 20 are important for us to think about and to read. Let's, Let's read them together. This day shall be for you a memorial day you shall keep it as a feast to the lord throughout your generations as a statute forever you shall keep it as a feast seven days you shall eat unleavened bread on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day that person shall be cut off from israel on the first day you shall hold a holy assembly and on the seventh day a holy assembly No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month, that was the day when the lamb was slain at twilight. From the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. Notice that language. He shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. That's how massively important this is. It's like if you forget this, you lose your identity. If you, if you fail to act on what God is commanding here, you lose your sense of who you are as a person who has been redeemed. You are put out of the community because of that. Verse 20, You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Now, we'll talk more about this when we get to chapter 13, but the reason that he's so focused here on the leaven is because this was such a unique experience that was central to the Passover and only done at the Passover. Everybody's used to eating bread that has been leavened and rises. But when they did this for an entire week, it would remind them of what had happened at the Passover. It was a major part of bodily remembering what had been done. And it would highlight the importance of this event every single year. Now, for you and I, the point of this is that we must call to mind often what God has done. We have to go back to it regularly, back to our redemption, back to the work of Christ and live there. And remember, this matters so much for you and I every day. I want to read you another quote. God did not give us his gospel just so we could embrace it and be converted. Actually, he offers it to us every day, every morning, as a gift that keeps on giving to us everything we need for life and godliness. Not once a year at a feast of unleavened bread. Every morning you wake up And you have the benefits of the gospel at your disposal to remember and to absorb and to live there because it forms your identity as a redeemed follower of Christ. The wise believer learns this truth early and becomes proficient in extracting available benefits from the gospel each day. We extract those benefits, these benefits, by being absorbed in the gospel, speaking it to ourselves when necessary, and by daring to reckon it true in all we do. I love that last line. Daring to reckon it true. Getting up in the morning and reading a passage of Scripture and saying, I don't feel like it this morning, but I know this is true, and I'm going to live as if it's true today. How would it change your life if you got up every morning and you dared to believe you dared to believe that you are fully accepted by God. That you don't have to do a thing today to earn his approval. Because the blood has been shed for you. And you don't have to do anything to get him to accept you through the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to earn his approval. You are his son and his daughter And he is pleased with you, just like he's pleased with his son this morning. How would that change you if you dared to reckon that true every morning? And then lived as if that were true. true. For me, I think that would bring a sense of joy and peace and rest and comfort with myself and with others as I go through the day. I don't have to perform for anybody. The God of the universe loves me and has accepted me. It changes everything. And that's why God has given us the gift of the gospel in the scriptures to go back and remember it. Don't forget. Extract those available benefits and dare to reckon that they are true each and every day. And that leads us to our last element of redemption. The obedience flowing from faith. Look with me at verses 21 to 27. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb, take a bunch of hyssop, which is a branch that was used in purification. They were to put the blood on the hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. This is a very personal experience, because each of these Jewish families was sitting in their house that night, knowing what was happening And knowing that they had put the blood on the lintel and the doorposts, and God says, I see the blood for you in your house. And when their firstborn made it through the night and was fine in the morning, they knew the Lord had seen and had passed over because of the sacrifice of that lamb for them. You hear of what God is going to do, of his liberation, of the possibility of you being spared judgment and the reality of that. And the only appropriate response is at the end of verse 27. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Worship happens when you recognize God for who he is and for what he has done and rejoice and adore him for that. But it doesn't end there. Verse 28. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. They got all the details of this. Each house got a lamb. They killed the lamb at twilight. They got rid of leaven out of their houses. They gathered bitter herbs. They spread the blood. They roasted the lamb. They ate the meal together. They did all of this. Why? Because they believed the word of God. So they acted on it. God said it and they trusted in his word. The only reason they acted and they obeyed here was because they had faith. They had faith that he would do in both judgment and deliverance what he said he would do. They trusted that the lamb would protect them. The blood of the lamb would deliver them from judgment. And they put their faith and their hope in God's words, and so they obeyed. And they spent that night resting in the character of God and in the faithfulness of his words, and knowing that the Lamb had made atonement for them and delivered them from judgment. Now, with all of this, it's hard not to end by going to Hebrews chapter 10 and reading this. After this huge explanation in Hebrews of the sacrificial system and the work of Christ, now the author of Hebrews turns to application, and he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here's what we do. Let us draw near, near to God, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. It's the same thing for you and I. We hear the words of God regarding the redemption that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ by his shed blood. We believe it and the encouragement to you and I on the basis of that is let us hold fast to that confession of hope without wavering. It is still true. What was true in this time, the words that God spoke that they could bank on and be confident in and act upon are still true today regarding the greater sacrifice, the final Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. So hold fast the confession of your faith without wavering for he who promised is faithful. He always comes true, comes through on his word. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the scriptures, we're thankful for this passage. At times, the shedding of the blood of this lamb and the bitter herbs and the the unleavened bread seems so distant from our lives today, but this is only a shadow pointing forward to the full and final redemption we have from the true Passover lamb. We thank you for the deliverance from judgment and death that we have in you, Lord Jesus Christ. May we walk out and live in confidence and obedience, and always remember what has been done for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.